This is a tough topic, mostly because languages are currently in a great deal of flux as they figure out how to deal with the preferences of individuals with regard to expressions of gender and gender identity. The, the issue is uh, complicated by the myriad different ways that languages mark gender. In some, all nouns have gender and verbs match up with them so that one can tell, for instance, in modern Hebrew or Serbian, uh, what the narrator telling you the story who says, I, you can tell when, when the narrator uh, who's who's narrating, who's telling you the story, says, I saw this, I saw that. You can tell whether that is a male or a female speaker because the, the verb matches the gender of the speaker. In, in other languages, one indicates a possession uh, by means of a pronoun that agrees with the noun it accompanies. So that, uh, for instance, in most Romance languages, her and his and their books, let's say, are all expressed using the same pronoun, since it's just it just has to agree with the number of the word books. Um, the the gender of books tends to disappear. It's it's gendered in the singular, but it tends to disappear in the plural. So it just becomes a plural noun, and you'd say it's a plural. So it's his or her or their books, all using the same pronoun. Sus, for instance, in in, uh, in Spanish, or se in French. So then there are the marked and unmarked aspects of words. This, these are linguistic categories, marked and unmarked, that function a little bit like brand names in English. <laughs> it's a funny metaphor, but it's a little like that. Kleenex for tissues, for instance. So again, in Spanish, for instance, sus padres, might mean her parents, or they might. It might mean their parents, or it might be his parents, or really any combination of her, his, their, and parents. Um, not to not to mention fathers, because the word is actually padre, padres. It's the plural of father. Um, if, for instance, a person has two or more fathers, you might say sus padres, his fathers, and not mean it as his parents. So that's all possible depending on context. Um, and some languages have gendered numbers, even as uh, not and not just the the ordinal kind that are sometimes used as adjectives like first and second and third. Uh, so the number two, for instance, might be masculine or feminine depending on the noun it modifies, and the number twelve or seven or or nine might be masculine or feminine depending on whether all members in a group are of masculine gender. That has to do with marked nature because it's usually masculine. It's like a group of 12 guys can be designated as in a particular way. But if it's a mixed group, it might be designated also that way. So the, the unmarked category is, is 12 guys. Um, and if it's, if it's 12 women, you have to make a special arrangement for that. Uh, so um, there are many more such examples. And I, I've, I really... Uh, I have to note that this aspect of language has always fascinated me, at least when I was learning about it. Um, trying to produce the proper form in the midst of a conversation is another story that's likely to breed frustration because you might you're likely to get it wrong. Um, uh, English, the one that I know best, has tended to use agreement of pronouns with the subject. 
So my goes with I. If I is the subject, and then the pronoun is going to be my or mine. And then her goes with she, and there goes with they, or any plural inanimate um, animate subject. For instance, they all lost their way, right? Or all all the books、uh, found themselves on the table. If you want to make it animate. Um, so this is likely one of the aspects of the language of English that has tended to make it easier for those who didn't grow up with it and,、uh, to, to learn,、um, because it's got this rule: you use the subject, and then the subject breeds the pronoun later in the in the complement. So these gender aspects of language are not fixed. Um, they have been changed. They have changed over time, and many of them have only been codified by grammars and dictionaries in the relatively recent past. In some cases, ten, twenty, thirty years, they might not have had a grammar written down in, for many languages. The un- under-resourced languages of the world, in many cases, don't have something written down. This is not quite as fast as the frog DNA-infused dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, which changed genders in that first film.、Uh, but there is a change over time, and if you dip back into the history of languages,、um, it's not at all uncommon to find a word that was gendered in one way in the past now being gendered in a different way. Now, into this flux comes the relatively recent phenomenon of preferred pronouns, in which people indicate whether they would. Like to be referred to as she, her, hers, he, him, his, or they, their, theirs. The last category being something, generally at least, not always, but generally considered a non-binary set of pronouns.、Um, these are all, I should say, usages,、uh, presumably for when the people you're referring to are not in the room with you, right? Otherwise. Would be rather impolite and even insulting,、uh, potentially, as my Russian instructors taught me in college,、uh, as if you were referring to someone in the room as if they weren't there. Right? You, you're saying that person over there, that guy, that that person there,、um, which is is just rude. So this is for when you're not together, <laughs> when somebody's not there, and you're not gossiping. Presumably,、uh, you need to have a third-person way of referring to them. So translators translating, especially contemporary works, but not only contemporary works, are doing their best to reflect the changing norms, which often clash with long-standing editing conventions, which change very, very slowly.、Uh, the sorts of grammatical agreement they were taught to stick to as students of their beloved subjects, the languages that they sub that they studied, and the relative acceptance or resistance of readers.、Right? You have to be thinking about. Whether or not your readers are going to accept or resist your text, does using a publisher's Chicago Manual of Style-based house style serve to in- reinscribe power relations that ought to be questioned?、Um, will a pronoun choice that a translator makes risk turning off readers, thereby harming the reception of an author's work? Might a work that has universal appeal be better served? By neutralizing strictly gendered male pronouns in its translated version, and on this,、uh, on that question right there, see see below. I'm going to get to it. These and other questions are on the minds of translators these days as they grapple with how best to do justice to the works they take on and make them as effective as possible in their receiving culture. Now, the issue is easier for authors、uh, of. 
of original works, not translators, but authors, right? Who can start over from scratch, eliminating what was leading them to a choice they weren't happy about, so that in effect the choice never really materializes. And I'm reminded of my first writing teacher, the feminist author Lillian Faderman, who explained in her most practical writing instructor mode that if the text you were tran- you were composing was leading you into an inevitable impasse, let's say uh, a grammatical one, let's say grammatically forcing you to make a, a choice between using him or one or the then ungrammatical and incorrect them as the complement to a singular subject, let's say, you could just start over and come at it in a different way. Use a plural subject, she said. Why not? Or or rephrase the whole thing, right? You're the author. You're making it up, right? So just start over. Cross all that out. Do it a different way. To a great extent, this option is available to translators as well, not crossing it all out, but rearranging things. So one can change a singular subject, for instance, the author, to a plural one and just call it authors, so as to allow for a there in the complement. Um, for instance, authors must know their limits instead of the author must know, ah, what do I do? Here, his, their, bad grammar, limits, because it's a plural. Or one can move pieces of the sentence around, Uh, to read something like, knowing one's limits is necessary for an author. Translators can do that sort of a thing. But once in a while, this sort of editing as you go is not possible for a translator. Um, For translators who have a source that is generally pretty inflexible, that's an understatement, the source just sits there, and that needs to be dealt with in its entirety. You can't skip the things you don't want to translate. So hold this thought. Um, It is a little bit like how it's easier to tell if a prose text has been written by a non-native speaker of English than it is to tell if a poetry text has been written by a non-native speaker of English. The norms for prose are simply more numerous and uh, tend to be more rigid um, than for poetry. Uh, The norms than for poetry and even so for poetry it might be possible even maybe expected to play around with the norms so let's say if you you've got an idiom that's written wrong in the prose sentence it tends to leap off the page as a mistake well the idiom that's written wrong in the poetry line might be seen as an inventive intervention into the language Um, and there are obviously exceptions to this phenomenon but usual unusual pronoun combinations can work a lot like this errors to be corrected in prose fascinating inventions in poetry. And I'm remembering of uh, how a a grad student classmate of mine who was a native speaker of French, a language I had studied extensively and spoke pretty well, still speak it pretty well, she she liked to make deliberate mistakes when she spoke her native language as a way of joking around. And she would often remind me, I can speak like this, but you cannot. Um, And so I tested her theory out, and she was absolutely right. The moment I tried it, the listeners I would be speaking with assumed that my deliberate mistakes, I was trying to be funny, right? My deliberate mistakes were not deliberate at all. In other words, they always assumed I was speaking in prose. 
Now, some of the challenges associated with the new norms are highlighted in a fine, short translation that a colleague brought to my attention recently, which was published in July uh, of this year, 2021, at another Chicago magazine, uh, and which can be accessed um, in the link provided on, on in the blog. The story is called The Death of the Translator. It is by Magnus Siguroson. I'm not sure about the pronunciation in Icelandic, but that's the way I'm going to say it in English, and is translated uh, from the Icelandic by Mark Ioli. Um, the story's premise is perfect for translators, a mysterious and supposedly untranslatable poem that the translator of the title is in the process of translating. Ioli's preface has this highlight of a, a common issue that translators face, a, a word that means more than one thing in the source culture, which in this case happens to be the word for translation, which can also mean meaning according to his preface. So facing this little bit of untranslatability, the translator finds himself in a sort of a mise en abime, uh, where one thing is being eaten by another, swimming in the action of translating an impossible passage in a text about a translator translating an untranslatable text. Um, it's great. I, I, I love the story. Um, then, and more to the point of this post, he turns to the issue of the gender of the translator in the story. And here's a quote from Ioli's uh, uh, short headnote. Another decision had to do with the portrayal of the translator who in the story is male. I saw the story as likely autobiographical to some extent, as the author himself is a translator of poetry, but didn't think that the detail was integral to the storyline. As the experience and emotions described are so common and universal, I wanted any literary translator to be able to see themselves in it and decided to make the translator's gender unspecified. I approached Magnus with the idea, which he was receptive to, leaving the decision to me. Now, uh, we're back to me. That's the end of the quote. The transformation of gender in translated text is not a new thing. Um, I have a former student, uh, Dr. Leah Leone, who has a fascinating dissertation that explores this topic. It's linked on the blog. It's about Borges' translations of English language works into Spanish. I believe a book in the, on the, based on the dissertation is, is forthcoming. Um, the Turgenev classic, Fathers and Sons, actually doesn't have the word sons in the Russian title. It has children and doesn't specify their gender. So we, maybe we should call it Fathers and Children instead. And there are doubtless many more such examples. These kinds of shifts are clearly among the choices that translators and sometimes editors of translations make. What I find most interesting in this case is, two, is twofold, really. First, the rather quick dismissal of the autobiographical aspect of the text, which the translator acknowledges but then decides is not integral to the storyline. I don't know, this is one of those places where I would have doubts if it were me. I mean, I don't know everything about the text or the author. I'm, I'm doing my best with this one, right? And, and, I, and maybe there's an autobiographical, as, autobiographical aspect that is latent in the work that I'm just missing and I'm just not seeing it. It's always a fear of a translator. What did I miss here? Compounding this doubt, I also wonder, don't some gendered texts speak to everyone? Is it necessary to change a text that might appeal universally such that its narrator doesn't have a clear gender identity? I mean, if it has a universal appeal, do I have to change, the, to, to, do I have to neutralize the gender? I mean, as I say, these are questions, 
really the, the sorts of questions typical to the practice, and it is the practice that interests me most. I don't think I'm criticizing Ioli for his choices. I'm questioning uh, my own, really. <laughs> this is one of those places where the constraints of translating, it seems to me, allow for far less writing freedom than the constraints of authorship, uh, where, as I said before, one can cross it all out and start over. In other words, I think the case points, this particular case points to a distinctive aspect of translation practice. Um, so in this paragraph, the one I'm going to read, it's just the translator all the way through. The translator paid no mind to such talk, sitting instead year after year, preparing and burning the midnight oil, reading exhaustively all that had ever been written about the extinct language and its inscrutable poem, becoming completely familiarized with all with its etymology down to the tiniest sedia, wielding to this end both the precision of a scientist and the intuition of a poet, the translator so thoroughly researched the poem's rhythm that both thought and speech began to rise and fall according to its meter. At some point, their consciousness became so enmeshed with its rhyme scheme that even dreams took on its complex internal pattern. Now that there of the final line where he says at some point their consciousness became so enmeshed that that just sailed by when i read this the first time and it seemed very unobtrusive in my in my reading uh and if a, a their pronoun was slipped in as as right there uh occasionally throughout the rest of the text i might not even notice and also repeating the translator has a distinctive quality that adds it seems to me to the somewhat eerie tone with of the of the story it's a kind of floating above the surface of the words without a secure connection to anything of the world that supposedly they are a part of um and i i'm remembering the the carlo mickelstetter phrase that describes this floating above phenomenon as um kalopismata orfness ornaments of the darkness um and there's a phrase i i like quite a bit um, anyway, up to this point, three paragraphs in, I am thinking that the translator of the story, uh, Ioli, is, is going to stick with this method, which strikes me as rather subtle. Um, but then the textual constraints grow, it seems to me, because of the way it's written. And, and the translator of the story changes tack. And here's a, here's a line. So after years of tireless preparation, preparation best described as having lasted a lifetime, the translator finally sat down at their desk one morning with paper and pencil and got to work. Now this is in the fifth paragraph, and this at their desk marks a change. It seems to me that it's consistent with the use of a neutral they, their, theirs as the preferred pronoun to the end. So in quick succession, we get, quote, the translator was armed with all the dictionary's reference materials and explanatory notes at their disposal and, quote, their heart beating in time with the meter of each verse and, quote, self-assured and full of confidence, they translated word for word, not losing sight of the poem's greater significance and so on. Now, somewhere in here, the choice begins to feel a bit forced to me. I have to say, and I can't help feeling that the style loses a little bit of the ethereality, probably because um, I find myself stumbling a bit over the mixture of singulars and plurals. These are my old ears and eyes, obviously, taking in the text. And I recognize that the language I live in is changing right now. So, so my reading patterns, which some might call my reading hangups, might not be around in another 20 years, who knows? 
we'll see. Um, more interesting, I hope, than this perception of style is the fact that I start to wonder, and this is because I'm now pretty used to they as a preferred gender pronoun, I start to wonder whether there isn't an embedded claim in the use of the pronoun about the non-binary gender identity of the translator of the poem, that is the character in the story. Is there a claim being made about the non-binary gender of the of the ident gender identity of the of the of the character? Now, this isn't the stated intended effect of the translator, which, according to Ioli's headnote, was to universalize the experience of the character by removing the obvious gender markings uh, from from the piece. But now that they there theirs can also function as a gender identity marker. Might this fact not also affect the strategy, in effect rendering the former universality of they less universal and more specific? <laughs>